The essence of the kingdom is the presence of the king. You don't have a kingdom unless you have a king. And so for these last several days, even a few weeks, we've been focusing on that, what it means to encounter, to enjoy, to engage the presence of the king presence of the king. I met with one of our men within the last week, and been, he had been participating within the Seek Week and zeroing in on that focus, and we were just talking about how that there is, there is something that changes on the inside of you when you realize that you are in the presence of the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords and, and to be able to start your day that way, to move, to move into your day realizing that, that you've been in the presence and you are in the presence of the King. His, his comment was, Pastor, it's just different. It's just different going to work putting on your boss hat, putting on your, whatever your hat is that you wear at work, but realizing that you've already been in the presence of the king. So anybody else you meet during the course of that day is a step down or two or three or four. And doesn't mean you don't respect who they are. Doesn't mean you don't honor who they are, but it just means that, that you've already been in the presence of the greatest and the most and the best and the biggest and we go forth in the presence of the king when the king David said that he heard the Lord say seek my face seek my presence David David said my heart said your face Lord your presence I will seek I will seek so let's, let's encourage that as a, as a habit as we move into the coming year. It's not just something to be done for four days at the beginning of a calendar year, but it's to remind us and to encourage in us a habit to seek him first and seek him most. And seek what pleases him. and Seek the power that he promises for us to fulfill our responsibilities and our duties that he's given to us. Amen. Now, with that being said, could I offer one more thing, one more thing that the Lord Jesus might be saying to us today? Your greatest struggles are the birthplace of your greatest freedom. Trust me. He would say to us, your greatest struggles are the birthplace of your greatest freedom. Trust me. Now, that's true. That would be true. Greatest freedom, that's part of it. Greatest freedom, it's because we would know when we're free, I've struggled and I've battled, I'm at wit's end, 
I don't know how to change it. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to deal with it. It's a struggle. So, Lord, I'm going to know when that struggle is not there. I'm going to know when I'm free. Your greatest struggle is the birthplace of your greatest freedom. There are folks in this room who, if you had the opportunity to let the redeemed of the Lord say so, and you put lips to what you know the Lord has redeemed you from and redeemed you out of, you could say, that's a true statement. My greatest struggle, it might have been drugs, it might have been a lifestyle that was a million miles away from what God called right. My greatest struggle became the place of my greatest freedom. The things that used to hold me, the things that used to shackle me, the things that used to define me, the things that used to cripple me, the things that used to imprison me are no more in that place of power in my life. My greatest struggle, my greatest struggle became the birthplace of my greatest freedom in Jesus. Now, when you're in the middle of the struggle, it may not feel like there's anything going on except just more bondage, except just more of the same old, same old, heartbreaking, saddening, confusing place. But the word for us, I believe, this morning from the Savior's heart is you can trust me, set your heart to trust me, not yourself. If you could fix yourself from the struggle, if you could make some good out of the struggle, the Lord might say, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. <laughs> but because you can't fix it, because it's bigger than you, because you're not sure when it started and even when it's going to end, because you can't fix it, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. So how do you define greatest struggle? Shirley and I were talking about that this week. I was getting a little outside help for the preaching. It's always better when she helps. And she said, I think you could put it this way. It's whatever it is that pushes your button. It pushes your button. Now, here's an example of that. I have a good friend, and if I called his name, many of you would know exactly who I'm talking about. I've been a part of Alamo City, just as a friend to this fellowship for many, many years, but in, in this city, a businessman in this city. And he was diagnosed about five years ago <clears throat> with what for all practical purposes would have just been terminal cancer. Stage four melanoma, tumors, cancerous conditions throughout major organs in his body. There were so many tumors that they didn't even know where to start operating. And so they had to go to MD Anderson for some counsel and advice, and they prescribed a, a type of treatment that has become more normal now. But in the process of all of that, we were certainly praying for him and asking the Lord to rend the heavens and come down and touch our brother. And, but you know what? 
he said to me one day, and he's repeated it two or three different times. He said, my greatest struggle is not cancer. My greatest struggle is not being afraid to die. My greatest struggle is failure. I don't want to be a failure in the eyes of my children, in the eyes of my wife, in the eyes of my business associates. I don't want to be a failure financially. I don't want to be a failure in the bit you want to say, but brother, they've given you 5% chance to live. And you're saying that your greatest fear is not that, but it's failure. And throughout the course of his treatment and, and you know, in a wonderful and powerful sense of recovery, he never had that overwhelming sense of being concerned about dying or that cancer was going to take his life. He, that wasn't the issue. The button with him was the fear of failure. And he would say that it has the power to knock me back. It has the power to shut me down. It has the power to cause me to be timid and hesitant in decision-making. The Scripture says in Isaiah chapter 61, and Jesus read this in the synagogue in Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry. He said, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me the Lord has empowered me. The Lord has endued me with strength, imparted to me the ability to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and to set prisoners free. He states it twice, one phrase right after the other. I've been sent to set the captives free. I've been sent to proclaim freedom to prisoners. He was not just talking about those inside iron-clad prisons, but he's talking about us. When there is some perspective that imprisons us, where there is some attitude, emotion that can own us, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Anointed One, is saying, I have been sent for this specific purpose. To move into a life that is marked by restraint, that is marked by prison, and unlock that door and set that captive free of whatever the emotions were, of whatever the logic was, whatever the reasoning would be that has caused you or me any of us to be encapsulated in an emotional prison.
Just like my friend, if you looked at him and you saw him and you knew of his circumstances, you would think that you could identify what his prison would be, where he was held captive. It's, it's this cancer. It's this prognosis of these doctors. But he would say to you, you don't understand me. I'm not worried about that, but I'm worried about failing. In the eyes of people who I want to feel like I'm able to take care of them, that, that I'm worthy of their respect, I want them to know that I love them, and the, one of the ways I can express my love to them is that financially I can provide for them. I, it's not cancer. But what pushes my button is the fear of failure. Now, where we're going with that is we, we can't sit around necessarily and tell each other what each other's button to push is. I know what pushes your button. I know what your No, you don't. Now, we, we, some things may be obvious. But what is your greatest struggle? What is your greatest, your, your greatest struggle? And then the next question would be, why is it a struggle? Not that it isn't justified, that it's worth struggling over, but why is it a struggle? What is my struggle? And why is it a struggle? You know, if we just take out our, 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 our heaven app on our phone and just punch that thing and just, I need an appointment for Tuesday afternoon. I need to meet with Dr. Jesus. I, I, need, I need the wonderful counselor to help me with this. Because there's some parts of what I struggle with that I don't even understand why they're such big deals. But to be able to say, Lord, I want to come into your presence. And, and I don't have anything really to bring. And I'm not coming to you with a lot of stuff to inform you of that you need to do or that you could do better. I'm coming because, Lord, I'm a struggler. And I'm struggling with some things and some of this stuff I've struggled with so long I can't even remember when it started. But oh God, if you're able to set a captive free, if you're able to set a struggler free, I'm asking you to set me free. Okay, now see, we can think we're doing just fine when we're just kidding ourselves. What we're doing is we're limping into tomorrow the same way we limped out of yesterday. And not realizing that the struggle takes a toll. It takes a toll on us personally, but it takes a toll on what we're able to give away, what we're able to do, what we're able to be in the lives of other people. Your greatest struggles are the birthplace of your greatest freedom. Identify your greatest struggle and then take that to the Lord. Lord, 
is it somehow in this place that you're going to show me freedom like I have never known? It may not mean that the facts are rewritten about what has happened to you. It may not mean that some ones who perpetrated certain things against you have ever said they're sorry. The, the facts and other people may never change. But that doesn't mean that you can't be set free. That by the power of the Spirit of God, He can set you free from the inside out so that when a name comes up, it doesn't own you. When a date comes up, it doesn't cripple you for the rest of the month. I've been sent to set the captives free. Why is that so important? Because it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. If the enemy can use whatever he can use and our flesh will work with him and our minds and memories can work with all of the, the darker side of things to steal joy, to steal a God-given kind of confidence that I can do all things through the one who's giving me strength. But if we're so buckled down with our struggle that we don't think God really has any time for us, that we're not, we're not worthy of him, to be merciful toward us, then the enemy can shut you down. The enemy can cause us to be stuck in a place, and the Lord just wanting that to be a, a stepping stone, not the place we live and build a house. So I want to ask you to go with me to the book of Genesis, the last chapter in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50. And I want to read these words, these verses that describe Joseph's later years. You remember Joseph, don't you? He was the youngest son. He was the favored son. He was the, the one who was given that coat of many colors that as soon as he was seen, he was known as the father's, his earthly father's choice and favored child. His brothers despised him for that, older brothers. Years pass. They had perpetrated a plan against Joseph when he was less than 20 years old. Had him sold into slavery, sent word back to the father that he had just been killed by a wild beast. They put blood on his coat, said he was killed by a lion or a bear or something. They despised him so much. They hated him so deeply, blood kin, blood kin now, that, that they not only just wanted him out of sight, they wanted him destroyed. They wanted him annihilated. And they came up with the plan rather than taking his life, they would just 
rid themselves of his presence and his company, never to see him again. So they, they sold him for 20 pieces of silver to a Ishmaelite band of traders on their way to Egypt. They thought that was the end of Joseph. No more have to worry about that kid brother with those dreams. Years passed. Joseph was bought by a man in Egypt high up in the Egyptian bureaucracy named Potiphar. He bought Joseph, put him in charge of his household. Joseph excelled as a young man, a million miles away from home. He could have checked out on everything decent and moral, everything he had been taught. But for some reason, he didn't. And even more important than that was God was on him. God was on him. His brothers had rejected him, but God was on him. Potiphar's wife came after Joseph. Joseph spurned her advances. She created lies about him, that he had attacked her. He was after her. The husband took her word. Joseph ends up in jail. He's in jail for a long time. He's by himself in a strange land, the victim of criminal injustice against him by his own family. And now he's in jail in Egypt, in a place where he couldn't speak the language and couldn't read the street signs. But God was on him. And the word came, I'm shorthanding all of this, the word came that the Pharaoh, the king, had had a dream and he was big on having his dreams interpreted. And he had all these, these magicians and soothsayers and wise men ring in on this dream and nobody could figure it out. Nobody, but finally, some way or another, they hear about Joseph, this Hebrew boy, young man in the prison. One night, Joseph goes to sleep in the jailhouse and the next morning, he's being called to the king's house. And he walks in. He's able to understand what the king's dream meant, interpret what the king's dream meant, apply practical solutions to the problem described in the king's dream. Some way or another, the king just immediately recognized that's true. That's what I dreamed. That's the, that's the situation and then he began to say, where do we find somebody who could help us administrate this calamity that is about to befall us? And then his eyes fell on Joseph and says, you obviously are a wise man. You obviously have the ability to understand things. I pick you to be second in the kingdom only to me. Army, you do what Joseph said. Legal leaders, you do what Joseph says. Population, you understand. When he comes by, you bow before him and you honor him just like you would honor me, the Pharaoh. Second only to Pharaoh was Joseph. His brothers 
back in their little Bedouin tents underneath some scrub brush tree out in the middle of nowhere thinking they had just dealt with the kid. But God had different plans. So they're over here thinking they've got it all done. They've gone on with their lives. They haven't thought about Joseph in a while. And Joseph just continues to be elevated in the king's favor until the time comes when famine moves in upon Joseph's family, his old family, they're concerned about survival, so the father, Jacob, instructs the brothers to go to Egypt because Egypt has food. Well, Egypt has food because God gave Joseph the means whereby to grow crops, save those crops. There'll be food then when the famine comes and the famine hit and so here comes his own blood kin that he hadn't seen in no telling how many years. The last thing on those older brothers' mind was that they had run into you-know-who in Egypt. They come in. Joseph is standing there. They finally work through where there's a face-to-face. They don't recognize him but he recognizes them. Instead of the last time he saw him, he was looking at him up, up out from the bottom of a pit. Now he's looking down upon them from a throne. Folks, listen. God will say to you, he will say to us if we'll hear it, your place of greatest struggle can become the birthplace of your greatest freedom and the greatest blessings that he has in his heart to want to give. Okay, so that, that's, that sets up almost where we are in Genesis chapter 50. Joseph recognizes them. They eventually recognize him. He sends for the father, for his daddy, and invites the whole clan, the whole family clan, to migrate to Egypt where he would take care of them. Which he did. But the day has come when the old daddy has died. Joseph's father has died. And the brothers, now in Egypt, now directly under Joseph's influence and authority, they get to talking and they get to thinking about what might become of them now that daddy's gone. We knew Joseph loved a daddy and maybe he was just doing all of this for us because of daddy. Now daddy's dead. What's going to become of us? So watch what happens in Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? They hadn't forgotten it. They remembered what they did. They knew what they did. So they sent a message to Joseph by way of a messenger saying, 
your father charged, instructed before he died, saying. Okay, now whether, whether the daddy actually said this or not, I mean, this is a conniving bunch of boys right here now. They're grown men now, but they're liable to still be conniving, trying to cover their tracks somewhere or another. It, it seemed that, but the good part is what, what the body of this message from them says about themselves. Thus you shall say to Joseph, supposing that the father had sent this message, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. Now, whether or not Jacob authored that statement or not, if they were owning up to what they had done, at least at this point in the journey, it's a good thing. Even if they felt like they needed to use their father's name to validate the request. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of God, your father. And then look at this. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Am I God? I'm not God. I know I'm not God. You guys don't need to treat me like I'm God. You don't need to be afraid. And as for you, verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. But the literal translation of spoke kindly to them is he spoke to their hearts. Back to the original premise that we started with today. Your greatest struggle is the birthplace of your greatest freedom. Trust me. How did Joseph get to this place, folks? Described in Genesis chapter 50, such that when he doesn't even have to honor his father with regard to what he would do to his brothers, they are standalone personal entities. He had the power to do with them what he would choose to do with them. How did he get to the place that he didn't take advantage of everything he could have leveraged against them, all the destructive measures that he could have applied because of who he was in the kingdom? How did he get to the place that when he hears from them, it was a sin committed against you? It was a wrong done against you. And the plea for mercy and the response, his response to that was that he wept. He wept. The reason he could do that, folks, listen, 
is because he was a free man. I'm not talking free in the sense of financial freedom, political freedom. I'm talking freedom in the sense that he was not bound by resentment. He was not bound up by bitterness that would have determined what he would have said and would have determined what he would have done. The response from a free heart was to weep, pity for what had been lost, but a sense of joy as well that they've they've seen it now. We've got a place to build again now. I don't want them destroyed. I want a restoration. I want a reconciliation. I'm free of that which would have caused me to want to destroy them. He uses the phrase in really specific words. It wasn't that in order for this freedom to take place, his mind had to be changed so that he wasn't thinking that it was all that bad what they had done to him. Look what he says. As for you, you meant evil against me. I know what you did. I remember what you did. The word to to me, you meant evil, that is a word that means you conspired You consulted and orchestrated a specific direction. You formulated with thought and intent a specific plan. And that plan was for evil. It was for evil. He's saying this to their faces. It was for my destruction. It was for my annihilation. You planned it for evil, but God meant it for good. Folks, listen, listen, listen. In the presence, in the presence of the Most High, in the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that you step back into and you leave in the Forum, you leave in the lobby all the reasons that you could have to keep hanging on to resentment here and to keep mistrusting and, and being worried about what they're going to do next, those, those kinds of things. You leave it out there and you just step back into his presence. And you settle down in his presence. There was a reminder that he is bigger and greater than all of the plotting and conniving and stealing and cheating and lying and destroying that will happen out here. That's not where you live. This is where you live. Somewhere along the line, Joseph had taken his shift of thought away from what his brothers had done to him, what he had lost as a result of what they had done to him. And some way or another, he had purposefully caused the shift and the focus of his heart to be upon the God who had not left him, who had not abandoned him. It was not the same with Joseph that just because my brothers have abandoned me, that means God has abandoned me. Sometimes the Lord allows things to happen with family members and even close friends. Well, we've got to try to figure this thing out. Where is God? And then to realize that God is not on that side. 
God is not out for my destruction. God is not out for my loss. My heavenly Father, my Abba, is out for my good. As hard as to bless me, as hard as to take care of me. And if I don't have any earthly human that is saying, attaboy, we're for you, we'll take care of you. There is one voice that is above every other voice. Somehow Joseph, the free Joseph, the free Joseph was tuned into that voice. Because you keep handling the stuff that's been done to you. You keep handling the things that have been perpetrated against you. And it has a way of just sucking the life right out of you. Sapping your energy. So that when God opens a door to move on, to go on, you're out of breath. You can't get up and go on. See, Joseph, Joseph had to step through these doors. He had to be a good household servant. He had to be a reputable prison manager as an inmate. And he had to be a good second hand to the king, right on to the king. He had to have energy to move on through those doors. To believe that God can do more for him in the rest of his life than was taken from him in the first of his life. I hope you heard that. If we allow the former and even the present to determine how we view ourselves and how we view our lives, and it leaves us exhausted, it leaves us without any sense of Confidence that's right in the sight of God that I'm nothing, but you're everything, Lord. And you've chosen me, and I belong to you, and I'm yours, and I want to follow you. Joseph had to take steps. Every day he had to make a choice. Will I let the bondage of my resentment against all that has happened to me, perpetrated against me, or will I believe that God means it for good. Folks, listen. God had to get Joseph to Egypt. Or we probably would never heard Joseph's name. Now, sometimes the Lord's ways of doing things raise our eyebrows, don't they? You meant it for evil, getting me to Egypt. God meant it for good. You say, why, why didn't you just send a greyhound, Lord? Why didn't you just transport him there, but it was, this was the way he to show to Joseph, just like to show to you and to me, that God has the power to take something evil, take something criminal, to take something dark and use it for good. God meant it for good. Now, I want folks to listen, some of you who have, and there are many in this place, many, many listen today. This has been the story of the previous years, even current situation of my life. We're thinking if I can just survive some stuff, if I can just get past some stuff, if I can just somehow, I don't even have to get real good. I just need to get a life back. But here's, here's, what, here's what the word good means. You meant it, you plotted it for evil. But my God meant it for good. Here are other synonyms for that Hebrew word. Good, lovely, 
pleasant, beautiful, excellent, lovely, precious, kind, right, and happy. In other words, there were some things that God was going to do for Joseph after he got him to Egypt by way of this evil corridor, in a sense. But once he got to Egypt, once he was in this strange place, but still with the favor of God upon him, the best years of his life, the best of his life, not just coping, not just trying to survive, not just trying to get by and then die. When God means something for good, he means something that is better, something that is more lovely, something that is more excellent, something that is more useful, something that is more wonderful, something that is more happy than ever experienced before. And a part of that can be because we have the backdrop of those sad years as a contrast for the brilliance and the warmth and the life in these present and future years. Please hear it, brother. Please hear the Lord say in this, sister, the greatest struggles in your life are the birthplace of the greatest freedom in your life, is to imagine that that person who's so upset at you or that person who's so wronged you, they have never changed. They've never said they're sorry. Maybe there's never been any sense of the consequences of their guilt being meted out from heaven upon their lives. Not one thing has changed about them. But something dramatic and measurable has changed inside you. The one who sets the captives free has come and he has set you free. What kind of person, listen, what kind of person could we be if we were not having to live so many hours in our day or nights or middle of the night in the struggle. What if the struggle ended? But, but if, we've, if we've got the ending of the struggle and the freedom tied specifically to a particular result, well, they get what's coming and then I'm free. You know? Or they say they're sorry and then I'm free. You draw in that circle too tight. This was working in Joseph's heart before he ever got that message from his brothers. There was a kindness operating in Joseph's heart toward his brothers even before he had a chance to express it because he was free. Free Joseph. Free Joseph. Free you. Free me. So how to, okay, give me the verses of Scripture, Pastor. Give me, give, me the, give, me, give me the fill in the blank Bible study so I can get there. This is going to this and it's going to, I'm going to get myself here into freedom. No, you won't. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you memorize. It doesn't matter how many Christians pray over you. 
It doesn't matter how many times you're dipped in the Jordan River. Only the spirit of the one who sets the captives free can set you and me free. It is an invitation, folks, not to study the Bible. It's an invitation to crave his presence. The, the, the Bible is accurate and it's necessary and it's precious and it's powerful, but it only serves to point us to him. So, Lord, I need you to set me free. You see, he's the only one who really knows what was done to you. He's the only one who really knows the full measure of what you have come through. Since he knows that, since he's all-powerful, since he's all-wise, and since he has loved you personally before there was ever dirt that San Antonio was built on, you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. He wants to finish what he started in you. Finish what he started in you. So our role is just to say, yes, Lord. I'm trusting you, Lord. Help me to trust you more. I can't set myself free. I can't reach the lock. I don't have a key to the lock. I can't do it. I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. I want you to say this with me as a faith statement. My greatest struggles are the birthplace of my greatest freedom. Lord, would you take that 18 inches? Would you take it past the hearing of the ear? Would you cause it to settle deeply? with our hearts. We could ask, Lord, well, when will I know that I'm free? And your response certainly would be, you'll know when you're free because you know what it feels like when you're bound. You'll know the opposite of what it is to be bound. Lord, I ask you to do that in us, please, in the name of Jesus. We want to live in a way that honors you. you and you, you've told us that what does the Lord require of you, old man, but to love, to, to, to do justly, and then to love mercy. To love mercy. Not, not, not to first love retribution, first love vengeance, or to first love anger, but to love mercy. How in the world can we do that, Lord, when things have been done to us that have been done to us? How can we do that? Only by your spirit. Only by your power. Would you set us free, Jesus? As you set and kept Joseph free. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.